Welcome to the Global Research News Hour in the summer. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration paid for by the Center for Research on Globalization and aided by campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. Historically, individuals from countries across Europe traveled the world and, in their exploration, brought back precious treasures to enrich their lives. Shortly, they would seek to conquer this territory and make it theirs. And in so doing, the fates of the people they met, who we now call indigenous peoples, were sealed. Injustices have continued as the colonizing nations and the settlers they left in their wake still must somehow justify ways by fair means or foul to continue exploiting the lands and eliminating the traditions and cultural ways and even the existence of the people that live in their communities. The state of the present situation facing indigenous people all around the world is the focus of the episode of the Global Research News Hour. And without negating persistent racist themes, there is to this episode a positive and hopeful episode. It's called The Restoration of Indigenous Rights and the Fall of the Colonial Hand. Our episode is divided in two parts. Part one is a conversation with Dr. Rudolf Rieser, the chair of the Center for World Indigenous Studies. Dr. Rieser has for more than 45 years worked in the field of Indian affairs as a writer, researcher, and as Indian rights advocate. Part two is a documentary I put together in the past month, an example of the current threat posed to the people of Hollow Water First Nation as they face a company called Canadian Premium Sands, seeking to mine huge amounts of silicon sand from the territory and the devastation critics say would result for their land, their water, and their health. That is coming up shortly. But first up, my conversation with Rudolf Rieser. I asked him to introduce himself to our listeners. Yeah, my name is Rudolf Rieser. I'm the chairman of the board and executive director of the Center for World Indigenous Studies. I founded it in 1979. Uh, I'm uh, My heritage is uh, uh, Cree and Oneida, uh, along with uh, Swabian, which is what my father was. And uh, my mother had uh, an interesting connection to an island off the northern coast of Scotland that goes back about 4,500 years. Uh, that's the Orkney Islands. So uh, that's sort of the mixture that I am. Uh, I, I doubt that anyone can claim to be pure these days since everybody else made the decisions some many hundreds of years ago over which we had no control. I uh, grew up uh, in uh, a small town called Ocean City off the coast of Washington State in the United States. We um, got there by way of a wagon train, interestingly enough, that extended back uh, some 110 years uh, that took some of my relatives from what is now Hudson Bay. And uh, before that, 
relatives extended back another 350 years uh, related in these different channels. Uh, my uh, academic or educational background uh, is that I have a, a PhD in international relations. I uh, hyphenated the word international because it really has to do with relations between nations and not necessarily uh, nations and states, but nations and states have become a very big part of my work over the last 25 years. Um, I think, you know, I, I have three young men who are in their 50s, uh, and I'm married to a remarkable woman uh, who is a traditional healer, uh, and she has written a heck of a lot more books than I have, but she's written 10 of them. Her name is Leslie Korn. And she and I work together in the center. She heads up the Center for Traditional Medicine. And uh, I, of course, head up the overall organization. So how's that? That's, that's great, an outstanding background. Uh, could you just maybe just mention uh, how you came to go into the field of, of Indian affairs and, and uh, you know, Indian rights advocacy? Was it, for example, was it part of your mother's shape you in that direction or were there other details? <laughs> uh, well, it's a good guess because it, it had everything to do with my mother. Uh, my mother uh, and her relatives uh, were treaty makers. They were negotiators and mediators. And uh, she picked up on that uh, from my great great grandfather who negotiated seven treaties with uh, the United States and some with Britain. Uh, my other relatives were also negotiators going all the way back 350 years. So I think that carried some weight in the way she thought about things. And when she uh, had all of her kids and I was the last of eight, uh, she made a decision in the 1950s to link up to the Cowlitz Indian tribe. The Cowlitz Indian tribe was in Southwest Washington. And the reason she was interested in that is that she wanted us as children to have uh, an understanding of tribal relations and uh, living within a culture that made sense to her. And uh, so for most of my early life, I thought I was Cowlitz. And then uh, because she was born in an area up above the Cowlitz uh, in the mountains in what's known as the territory of the Tayatnapum, then it was clear that we were also tied in a pump. And what that began to be revealed to me was that the names that we attach to various so-called tribes these days uh, really you know, is a way of saying where you are territorially, not necessarily uh, uh, politically. So uh, I learned some years later that my uh, eighth grandmother and seventh grandmother were doing exactly the same thing. They spoke seven languages uh, with various uh, uh, peoples in uh, what's now the Great Lakes re region of Ontario and Quebec. And uh, many of the historians look at some of my early family, as my mother was aware, uh, uh, thinking that they were very confused. They weren't. Uh, of any one, quote, tribe. What Europeans didn't understand is that you, the tribe idea was something they brought across the water. In the, the Western hemisphere, 
the kind of idea of tribe didn't exist. Families exist. And so it was family relations that were more important. And so when you used a term like Oneida and or Cree or Kalitz or Tayatnapum, you were actually saying the local word for people. And but that was pretty good. So my mother carried that kind of knowledge into her relationship with the college. And that's what I began to learn. When I entered uh, university, uh, after receiving a, a, a scholarship from the American Bureau of Indian Affairs uh, for four years of college, I uh, early on discovered that I was going to be involved with uh, the uh, American Indian kids who were undergraduates in the university and we formed a small organization. The small organization was made up of maybe 25 people. And we did so because the African, so-called African-Americans or blacks or whatever the other term Africans you want to talk about <laughs> had formed uh, their organization on campus and Latinos had formed theirs in the form of Chicano organization. And as young people, we were interested in being relevant, of course. And uh, we were asked a number of times, well, why didn't you have an organization? Well, we said we didn't think about it because we were from different people, different families, but we could do that, so we did. And uh, the consequence of that was that <clears throat> I then became uh, one of the heads of, of the organization. Uh, and uh, uh, along with uh, Roberta Menace or Bobby Menace, as we knew her, uh, her family name was Miller. She was Winakipam, Winakipam from up around Colville country in, uh, in central Washington. Um, she was related to uh, one of the key leaders of the Colville Confederated Tribes, and she and I became very good friends. We agreed that we were going to go <clears throat> and participate uh, in the affiliated tribes of Northwest Indians uh, meeting and then Spokane at the Davenport Hotel. And so we did. And we went there and uh, uh, now understand we were uh, probably we were freshmen or sophomores uh, in college. And so we saw ourselves as sitting and listening mostly and not doing anything else. Uh, we went to the main general assembly uh, of the affiliated tribes and sat down on the floor uh, in the front row uh, below a whole lot of other people from different tribes. And standing up in front, uh, delivering a speech uh, was her aunt, uh, Lucy Covington, who at the time I didn't know was, was uh, an historical figure. Uh, she was the granddaughter of uh, Chief Moses, uh, who actually uh, negotiated the creation of the Colville Territory. Uh, in the northern part of Washington and actually a little bit of Canada. And <clears throat> as she was delivering her speech, she immediately looked down upon the young ones and said, I want you to listen every word. You must listen carefully because you will be up here one day and you must know where everything came from and where it's going to go. Yeah. At the break, we then were asked to go off to another room, and so we did. Uh, and about that time, 
sitting in that room, some of us on the floor, just sort of giggling at each other, uh, we were approached by a Blackfoot who walked up and said, uh, does anyone speak English here? And several of us raised hands. Can any of you write in English? Uh, a couple of us did. So he turned to me and he said, I want you to come in and listen to what's being said here and translate the English into English. And then once it's on paper, give it to that guy over there who happened to be a guy from the US government. And so I agreed to do that. And so I listened to this speech. I wrote it down and uh, put English into English and gave it to him. That was the beginning of my Indian Affairs career. Because after that, I was asked to do things over and over again by various leaders. And slowly but surely, I became part of what was known as the Colville Mafia. That was made up of about six people, including Bobby Miller and uh, the chairman of the Colville Confederated Tribes, um, Nelson Askett and uh, Sherwin Broadhead, who had formerly been uh, an administrator with the Bureau of Indian Affairs but worked for the Colvilles and with uh, Wendell George, uh, who's also a Colville. And our job was to write things and produce things and mainly policy. So that was a great education. I found it far more valuable incidentally than the university. Yeah. And so as we went along, uh, we began to travel uh, with the Colville Mafia uh, and the president of, uh, uh, well, Mel was the, chairman of Colville, but became the president of the National Congress of American Indians at uh, Lucy Covington's behest. And the consequence of that was I began to travel around on what was known as two pennies pushed together. We didn't have any money, but we did a lot of work developing new policy. And that's how it all began. So your work, I mean, affects, it affects people, uh, not just in Pacific Northwest, but in, in Africa and Europe and, uh, and all over America and Canada. Um, could you maybe just sort of summarize what, what the common themes are that, that, that you keep finding uh, come up in, in research, as well as in the problems that these people face? A lot of it, uh, the research has to do with reclaiming language and traditional medicines and uh, traditional food also reclaiming territory, ancestral territory, uh, largely because uh, as we began to explain to many people in the world is that these various nations occupied ancestral territories that in many instances made up most of the territory of an existing state uh, and that the state was created effectively on top of that territory. And the state then because of its claim to sovereignty, claim to have the ruling authority over that ancestral territory. So you ended up with competing sovereignties within uh, these boundaries of the new states. Uh, Canada is a good example of one of those states and the United States as well. Two thirds of Canada is really uh, ancestral territory uh, of the various nations that are there. Two thirds of the United States is the ancestral territory of the nations inside the United States. What, do you, what about the, the one-third that's left? Uh, well, that part was essentially granted over to the colonizer. So the colonizers have this small amount of territory, but they want to rule all of the territory. 
So many of the nations that we deal with are engaged in the problem of uh, mediating or dealing with the conflict uh, with the state over who's going to exercise power over the ancestral territory. And of course, that involves not only land, which is central, but it involves foods, medicines, ability to travel, uh, access to different sacred territories and that sort of thing. And so that contest uh, is now globally uh, going on. And so many nations reach out to CWIS and our policy is that we don't do anything unless there is a question that some nation puts to us. And when they reach out to us, we usually ask the question, what's your questions? What do you wanna do? And so they then list a number of things. So for example, we were approached uh, about seven years ago uh, by the Yazidi uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, this was within a, a, a about 13 months after they had been attacked by ISIS and uh, 10,000 of their men had been killed within two days and about 6,000 of their women had been enslaved along with children. And we said, well, all right, what, what do you want to do? They had already reached out to uh, Survival International, Amnesty International, Cultural Survival, all of these organizations, but they were unsatisfied because they said, all they want to do is say they will advocate for us, but they won't do anything. And I said, well, what do you want to do? And uh, they said, well, we want our own government. We said, well, that's certainly possible. We might be able to work that out. Secondly, they said, we would like to uh, ha ha hold the people who killed our people accountable and those who are colonizing and occupying our territorial uh, uh, accountable. And we said, well, that's possible too. And the reason we say it's possible is because we rely on the knowledge of the people themselves. And we encourage them by offering them research information to support their aspirations. Within uh, something like 14 months, we had facilitated the development of a new government called the government of Izidikan. That means land of the Izidi. And it uh, covers uh, a little over a million people in Northern Iraq, as well as people in uh, Syria, uh, in Armenia, and in Georgia, and in parts of Russia, which is where a lot of uh, Yazidi diaspora are located. And so once their government was formed, the next question was, well, what can it do? Well, it needs to, they said, our priorities are to get water. And they said, well, let's find a way to get some funds to support the digging of wells. So we worked with them on that. We got funds to help them do it, dig wells. Food, they needed food because they'd half their population, or at least 200,000 of them, had been forced out of their villages into uh, 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 camps in northern uh, Iraq, and others had had their uh, food sources destroyed. So it was a question of finding food. So we, we encouraged their new government to find ways to do that, and they began to deliver food to various villages. So what they began to realize is that they could do it themselves. They didn't have to ask Iraq or Iran or Syria or anybody else. They could do it themselves, as difficult as it was. They would take care of themselves. Now, this is a people 
who have a calendar that extends back 6,700 years. It's not like they're babies. They do know how to survive. And they're, they're in what is called the, the, the uh, uh, Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. So they're in the richest land in that whole area. And they're an agricultural people. Yeah. So that was very important. Okay. So that is an example. Uh, and we've been since now over the last six years working on the development of a new international tribunal to deal with the question of accountability. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, I know like there's been all these uh, basically uh, you know, people, I guess, needing advice in terms of, you know, dealing with issues of like whether it's hydro or uh, mining or, or, or something else like that, uh, like ex excavation. And, you know, now today, I mean, more recent problems coming up in, in the efforts to fight climate change. Governments are trying to decrease dependence on fossil fuels. So there is increasing harvesting of, of lithium and other strategic minerals on indigenous land. And I wonder how, how, how these fights are uh, over minerals and, and, and ways um, of, of controlling that are, are being resolved. Well, when you look at a problem like that, you see that the green energy is a desirable thing simply because it does facilitate the transition from carbon-based economy to an, basically an electricity economy. That's good, except for what you just pointed out. It's not just lithium, it's tantium, it's gold, it's copper, uh, it's uh, about 60 different minerals. Interestingly, and I'm suspecting you know this, uh, the vast majority of those minerals are now accessible, or at least uh, they are located in the ancestral territories of indigenous peoples. Now, what that means is that if the tra transnational corporations and the governments and various corrupt peoples uh, who are unregulated incidentally under international law and under state-based laws, they can simply go into these traditional territories and start digging or they do other corrupt things like enslave people to gather and collect these minerals. And then they export them usually back to countries in Europe and in North America, because they're the ones that have some of the biggest demand for these things. <clears throat> what we've begun to do is point out to the various nations that you have to look at the weakness of those who are trying to extract these materials because it's not a bad idea for them to extract them. It's just that they need your consent under your rules and under your guidance to do the extraction. And fortunately, uh, because uh, of the principle of free prior and informed consent that many countries in the world have adopted uh, by enacting various treaties, uh, including the ILO convention uh, 169, that is very specific about this, uh, I say to them, and our researchers point out, the weakness of the transnational corporations and the corrupt political leadership, more often not, and the various companies that buy these raw materials, is money. The question is, how do you prevent them from getting that money or redirecting that money to support your aspirations instead of 
say, the aspirations of the state and the corrupt leadership of so many of these states. I keep saying corrupt simply because many of the states where these raw materials are located are uh, basically corrupt and collapsing states. So they're, they're run by people, dictators and that sort of stuff, who also benefit from these companies because people uh, buy them off. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess one of the other things I, I guess we should talk about is how these issues are brought to the attention of the United Nations. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, there is the uh, UNDRIP, the uh, declara UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People in 2007, uh, Indigenous Nations and the United Nations and, and various state members uh, managed to get a world conference on Indigenous Nations back in 2014. And uh, major events uh, in terms of heightening this you know, indigenous awareness mindset and, and an involvement as well. Could you tell me, did, did the uh, the Canadian Center for uh, for World Indigenous Studies play a role in terms of bringing together the indigenous nations with the UN or, or other, like otherwise informing them in some way? Well, I, I'm, we worked for a little over 25 years uh, to help develop the UN Declaration. Uh, and other instruments. Uh, but the difficulty was that they were being enacted by the various very entities, states, governments, that were in com competition with indigenous nations in their traditional territories. So you're asking the very people who are claiming your territory to be nice to you. And so what the states basically did was said, well, there's a lot of pressure to get us to agree to the UN declaration will uh, help set up the uh, UN Permanent Forum, uh, will set up the uh, MRIP, uh, the expert uh, mechanism to evaluate and look at all of these things and talk about them. We'll have the UN Human Rights Command Council, uh, including uh, comments and discussions with a special uh, rapporteur on indigenous rights. We'll do all those things. However, we will not enforce any of it. <laughs> we'll talk about it, but we're not going to enforce it. And so many of us looked at that and said, well, you know, this is silly. Here we are talking to the very people who are benefiting from nation's territories. Uh, why would they want to give it up? They've got control over it. And they have the overwhelming military power to hold on to all their, their control. There has to be a set of different alternatives. And so I began talking to many people that I worked with and dealing with the UN and all these other entities, uh, state-based entities. And I said, look, you're, 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 we're all saying things like states have to recognize traditional knowledge. They don't even know what that is. Unless we tell them what that is, then it's meaningless to have them build that into the climate change uh, legislation. And indeed, that's exactly what's happened because the states now say, well, you know, we, we like traditional knowledge, but, you know, there are five, and as many of us would point out, there are more than 5,000 nations in the world with all those different cultures and different knowledge bases. No one's talking about all the different forms of knowledge that need to be considered. There's no mechanism for dealing with them. Uh, there wasn't any mechanism until we decided we needed a new independent international mechanism uh, that will not only 
monitor, but mediate and facilitate negotiations of consent nations, uh, dealing with questions all the way from traditional knowledge to access to raw materials, to jurisdictional questions, to foods and medicines, the whole ball of wax. There needs to be a new mechanism, but what's key is that indigenous nations have to be central in controlling it and creating it. And so that's what we're involved in now. Okay, well, I got to tell you, Rudolf, uh, Reeser, I mean, we're at the end of our 25 minute agreed time, but I, I, I want to say it's been a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, you presented an eye-opening portrait on international issues, uh, seldom appreciated in media. Uh, all the best in your work and, and thank you very much for this chat. Good, thank you. And Dr. Rudolf Reeser chairs the Center for World Indigenous Studies, which he founded. To get a more full view of the work they do, please visit cwis.org. You are listening to The Restoration of Indigenous Rights and the Fall of the Colonial Hand. It is a presentation of the Global Research News Hour, the program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and aided by CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm Michael Welch. We now present a special look at the long battle against frac sand mining in Manitoba waged by people on Hollow Water First Nation on the east shore of Lake Winnipeg. The title is Hollow Water Gathering, the Sacred, the Science, and the Spiritual. Lake Winnipeg. Before colonization, it was referred to in Cree as Winnipeg, which means muddy waters. But there is concern today that the water of this great lake near an indigenous reserve could be made even worse if a recently suggested proposal were to be successful. A corporate project that could succeed in generating big profits for a mining company could result in long-term destruction of yet another water ecosystem. Physical setbacks for people vacationing in their cabins in the area and incalculable damage to the first peoples who have lived in harmony with this part of the world for thousands of years. This story you're about to hear is the story of a group of Anishinaabe water and land defenders based at a place called Camp Morningstar near Hollow Water First Nation. This community, more than a hundred kilometers up the east coast of Canada's sixth largest lake and 217 kilometers north of Winnipeg, it is also about friends and allies in the non-indigenous community who are working with them to protect nature, which they strive to live in balance, and prevent their community from suffering another in a long line of injustices delivered to them under the broad term of colonization. We went to Camp Morningstar during the weekend of June 25th and 26th to get the full story from critics to their opposition to the silica sand mining planned in their area. They offered much more than a news report, 
which is why this story is entitled A Gathering in Hollow Water, The Sacred, The Science, and The Spiritual. Don Sullivan has been a conservationist and a photographer for decades. He was particularly active protecting the east side of Lake Winnipeg. He had worked in this regard as the president of the Boreal Forest Network. He had become the former special advisor to the government of Manitoba for seven years and was a Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal recipient. One of his most successful achievements was his work in conjunction with four First Nations in fighting for and securing a 29,000 square kilometer patch of forest which includes ancestral lands and provincial parks in both Manitoba and Ontario as a World Heritage Site. Though officially retired from his conservation-related positions, he has become a leading voice in warning about how this corporation called Canadian Premium Sand was putting the hollow water First Nation as well as neighboring First Nations communities Manigatogan and Seymourville in danger with a giant mining project. As soon as they start digging up for that sand over there, you're going to have acid mine drainage problems, which means that the you know <laughs> what's going to happen is is the it's going to leach once the spring and winter run off and all the rain starts accumulating in the big pit there, there that's going to be there when they dig it all up because it's all all open pit mining. You pyrite and 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 marcasite, which are all acid generating. Uh, minerals and once that's exposed to air and water it oxidizes and then it leaches out the heavy metals and so that and because this is the high spot up here or there are it's a high spot everything will go running downhill whether it's into the lakes or into the, any of the temporary rivers that you see in the springtime or into the aquifer there's shallow aquifers all around here so it'll eventually seep into those aquifers, and, and I'm sure some of the cottagers around here get their water from an aquifer, so it'll pollute the aquifer too as well. A little over three years ago, CPS received an Environmental Act license that would allow the company to construct silica sand from the region and to construct both a dry and wet plant to process 1.3 million tons a year of the product for up to 30 years. This fine sand was prized for its ability to be used in mining oil and natural gas as part of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. It would be sent to the city of Winnipeg by truck and then sent to fracking regions across North America by rail. The proposal was revised in October 2021 saying the sand would now be used to focus on the production of solar glass. Don Sullivan saw this maneuver as a form of greenwashing. So this is what their, their game is. Oh yeah, we're going to be green. We're going to produce solar panels. Well, we don't care about solar panels. That's not the problem. It's the mine that they're going to mine over here. That's the problem. And you folks are the ones that are going to be left with it. And there's a word for that. It's called environmental racism. <laughs> Right in the nutshell. And, uh, you know, and that's what you get left with. You get the, the toxic mess and they get the nice little solar panels and so. Okay. so. 
A few dozen people showed up at the camp the next day. Everyone sat in a circle while drummers introduced sacred meaning to the gathering. To start us on the right footing, we had a water ceremony conducted by First Nations women. It's mine here. Thinking already that we can't even drink our water anymore out in the lake. One woman was speaking about the significance of the water and what it meant from her perspective. Because without water, we're not going to survive. Nobody's going to survive. I'm uh, Marilyn Sinclair uh, from Mala Water. I've, I've lived here all my life. And uh, I grew up... Uh, I grew up on the reserve uh, where uh, we used water right off the lake for everything, drinking. We we drank from there, you know, and we didn't have taps back then. We just had barrels, and we had to go uh, fetch water with pails, uh, me and my my younger brothers. Well, what are the the principal concerns that you have... uh, you know, in relation to, uh, uh, you know, what will happen to your community and, and what will happen to you? Uh, complete disaster if this, uh, if this mine is here, comes here, you know, it's... Uh, uh, the water is so much uh, damaged already and it's even going to be more, you know, We'll probably have to drink uh, bottled water from... We'll probably have to get water trucked in from other places, you know, if this ever happens. And probably will, you know. And I, I, I'm sad for our, uh, a lot of our community, you know, that they don't see that. You know, how come they can't see that? You know, they're... It's so... Uh, uh, as long as they have money, mm-hmm. and money, oh, you know, that's mm-hmm. priority for many people in the community. And that's sad, because, you know, we're the ones that are going to be hurt, our kids, our grandchildren. Saturday around noon, I took a tour along with nine other visitors to Black Island. This was the former residence of Hollow Water. Another silica sand mine was present there almost a century ago. It closed down in the 1990s, but apparently the impacts of mining are still being felt. Our guide was Dennis Lenevu. He was a biophysicist and a former safety officer with the White Shell Laboratories near Pinawa. He had the scientific expertise to interpret the scientific aspects of the sand mining. During a one-hour-long visit, he explained the significance of the mining in the area. The Corps actually started in 1929 and finished in the 1990s. Uh, And at the excavation face, the sand, which contains sulfide has been exposed to air and moisture normally it's covered 
by that gray or uh, brownish material on the top, which is glacial fill. It's impermeable and protects the sand. It's also covered by a shale layer, which you can see that gray material, which is also impermeable. Uh, but once it's exposed, the sulfide is oxidized to form uh, sulfuric acid and iron oxide, and the sulfuric acid mobilizes heavy metals and poisons the water. Now this sand was laid down in the Ordovician era four, over 450 million years ago when North America was a continent all by itself called Laurentia and there was an inland sea covering this area uh, that deposited this sand. And uh, then subsequent layers on top later, the glacial till is started about 250, uh, 2.5 million years ago. And uh, that covered this material and protected it uh, from exposure to air uh, all these years until it's dug up and now you get the acid drainage uh, and the water uh, that will have heavy metals in it and this drains into Lake Winnipeg. Uh, that, uh, so this acid water containing heavy metals will drain on this little uh, stream here into Lake Winnipeg. He said in the past year the acidity of the lake was actually increasing. What kind of impact could this have on fish and other living things in the water? It's not a trivial matter to stop this acid drainage. And, and it's going out into the lake, lake. right now. Now in the lake it's, it. it's yeah, a big dilution. Yeah. So there may be or may not be a, a heavy metal problem. Certainly at the mouth of the creek there it could get into the food chain through small minnows or so, uh, at the mouth and, and concentrate in the food chain. Or fish that are up along the shore may be contaminated with arsenic. Who knows? You don't know unless you measure. Nobody's measuring. It is also important to note that another peril facing humans was breathing it. The wind could blow the sand off site and that sand could enter the lungs. Don Sullivan explains. Because it's such fine sand, you get these uh, particulate matters that are very small. And they, they, if you inhale them, they attach to your lungs, right? And they genetically bind themselves to your lungs. And they get what, you can get what's called silicosis. There's actually a name for it, silicosis. It's a, it's a cancer-causing disease and it's specific to inhaling fine particulate matter of dust of silica. It's particularly worrisome for people who are babies and also for people who are elderly and who have already lung problems, right? And uh, so you may not experience it right away, but if you, in, if you inhale the dust and it, and it takes time, like five, ten years down the road, you develop silicosis, the company's gone, who's going to take care of your health issues, right? That's another huge problem. It was the government of Hollow Water First Nation, under Chief Larry Barker, who had signed onto it. And he had the support of several members of the broader community, 
But the people at Camp Morningstar insisted that the Manitoba government had not fulfilled Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution Act, which would require full and meaningful consultation with the people affected, and not just a signature from a representative of the people. M.J. McCarran spoke to this issue during a teaching lodge later in the day. They're coming into communities, they're getting a chief to sign a memorandum of understanding, but there's no consultation that happens in the community before that company deals with the, the chief. And the chief, can, as far as I know, can sign the memorandum of understanding. The problem is, is that he's also responsible for, for making sure that initial consultation with the community happens because your rights are communal. Your rights aren't individual, they're communal. So you absolutely are supposed to be consulted and you don't. What happens is the company comes in, they give their spiel, and then you have these little meetings, right? There's also no ceremony. There's no sacredness. There's no coming at things in an indigenous way. You know what I mean? Like in terms of, if you look at the treaties, there definitely were things included in terms of processes. But there's no processes that allow you, for example, when a treaty is made, you know, the first thing is to get to know the person. It can take, you know, before I'm going to talk to you, we're going to sit and we're going to visit for a while. And, you know, I'm going to get to know you before we actually get to, you know, agreements, right? And, and there was one chief that said during the times of treaties, yes, in the smallest of things, there must be an agreement. Because you have to be able to walk away with everyone understanding what this treaty is all about. It's not one side, it's both sides. And it's still a responsibility as you know, we're all treaty people, to make sure that these treaty rights are being upheld. But the processes that are used by the government absolutely slay that. And so this is what the fight has been about, is to get that recognition, but also to raise awareness. We have to work on that piece, right, that comes beforehand to insist, come on the land in a way that shows they're sincere, they're respectful, they're not just doing the cheesecake BS, right? And saying whatever. So we had pre-planned this and then we had agreed that this is going to be a spiritual uh, stand. Kelvin Ramsey was one of a small band of land and water defenders who took action early in 2019. They erected Camp Morningstar on the site expected to be the main access point for CPS. The individuals were actually reticent about doing anything visibly radical, which is why it was founded on a spiritual level. In the dark, they set up a teepee and created a sacred fire. Firekeepers and the camp have stood their ground in the more than three years ever since. Kelvin Ramsey relates his experience. We came and set up this tent at midnight to sneak in here, and then uh, we set up the tent. I lit the fire after it was all set up, and had it going since. And we've—I never expected it to grow this big, <laughs> like. I I thought there was just going to be a handful of us, and uh, I was very surprised and elated <laughs> that so many people came 
just right away, seemed within days, we had this place full. And, uh, so that was a good thing. And I thought that it gave me hope that we can do this. And I, uh, I stayed, I made my commitment that I would be here right till the end, till this mine goes away. And I'm always asked if I'm going to stay or what I'm going to do or anything. And I keep telling them I made a commitment. And my commitment is to stay here till this mine is gone. Tell my people are safe. When I say my people, I mean my people of this whole region. Not just uh, Hall of Water. I mean Seymourville, Manigatagan, and now the cottagers. It's been a hard going all these years. I've, uh, I've had to endure the cold and the rain, all the storms, winter storms are bad, blew a lot of trees down, I had to do a lot of cutting down, I even had a tree fall on my tent and I had to go out in the middle of the storm to go cut it, and I've had uh, Bears, wolves, and everything come to me. And I've also had uh, dishonest people come and steal off me. And that was hard. I lost lots. But I'm still here. I'm still going, and I'll keep going. The sweat lodge was an important feature of the camp. It, like the sacred fire and the teepee, grounded the action not in some political action, but in the spiritual. Such spiritual roots genuinely help energize First Nations who had these features suppressed over the course of the last century. I entered the sweat lodge myself in ceremonial on Saturday evening as part of my visit, along with about a dozen other people. I found it grounding in terms of how I approach this topic, including answering the basic question of whether or not I should present it. This is a, a really powerful plant for uh, kidney medicine. If you the next day, Kelvin they'll, took they'll, us a little ways up the, the path behind you, Camp uh, Morningstar. He described several them. features of the and plants, which formed a pharmacy of sorts of for the conditions bones. experienced by people yeah. in the area. And Perhaps this was another sign of traditions of healing, uh, overcoming the colonizing aspects of the dominant Western pharmaceutical ways. And they have a little berry. And... That's, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Norbert Hardesty, and I have a traditional name, which is Kijigoanang. Uh, uh, in English, that means day star. 
and I also have a second name that that is Getagibinesi, uh, that is Spotted Thunder, and my clan is the Sturgeon Clan. Norbert spoke to the crowd, introducing some more of the history and background of Camp Morningstar from an Anishinaabe worldview perspective. Uh, that name was uh, my great-grandfather's name, Morningstar Wabananang. He was one of the last few uh, Medewin priests around Lake Winnipeg, and he lived the natural way of living. He lived one with the earth, and he embodied the teachings about living well and in balance with nature. And so we thought it would be appropriate to call the camp Morning Star. Well, first of all, Black Island has always been a very sacred place, a very sacred island in the memory of our people, our ancestors. They had a very sacred relationship with the island. They were <clears throat> they were connected to it because that's where they lived there that's where they received their shelter their protection their nourishment and their spiritual guidance and that is where the the law of respect is in there because the island actually represents the buffalo and so that's why that's the law of respect the buffalo represents respect and that island was actually our first choice for a reserve. And then we were dispossessed from there after the treaty. And because the treaty and the Indian Act happened the same year. the treaty, Our treaty was signed in 1876. And then six months later, the Indian Act came into power. And then that's how they, they were forcibly re- removed from that island. I think uh, the most important thing is that we are still have a spiritual connection. When the elders talk about our connection to the earth, the fact is they say we are the earth. We come from the earth and we will go back into the earth. So when you, when you destroy one part of the earth, you're slowly destroying the Anishinaabe or indigenous culture. We cannot allow that to happen because the Creator wanted us to live a full and peaceful life and to develop our own way of life that the Creator gave us. The public gathering ended with a sharing circle in which people shared their own perspectives on the silica sand mining, efforts to resist it, and some of the larger issues related to the future of Kalo Water First Nation generally. While there was some division in the community, there was some optimism from the site as to whether Canadian premium sands would be stopped. Are you hopeful? I am, yes, yes, I have to be. I have to be. I have kids growing up here, grandchildren. Mm -hmm. So hopefully it gets resolved and... I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime, but, you know, as long as they keep, always keep fighting, keep standing up for their rights, safety. 
we want to do a little bit more um, speaking tours come September when the university comes back in to session. There's the U of M native students and there's obviously the U of Winnipeg. And we're also working at looking at a, getting at some international media coverage on the issue. So I think we're headed in the right direction. I think uh, we also know that uh, Wisconsin produces 21 million tons of high pure silica every year. Now there's a rail, there's a rail system that goes from Wisconsin right into Winnipeg and right to Selkirk. And both CP and CN have, are on that system. So they, this company can easily purchase all the silica sand they need for their solar plant in Wisconsin. They do not need to mine up here and leave your community with the toxic mess that's going to happen. The, the occupiers, the, uh, the invaders are still practicing colonization on our people. They come into our territories and they trick our people into signing agreements for money. So the best thing for us is to try and teach our people that we need to bring our viewpoint of our relationship to the land, make that more important than receiving money. This documentary, A Gathering at Hollow Water, The Sacred, The Science, and The Spiritual, was produced, directed, and narrated by me, Michael Welch. Guests included Don Sullivan, Marilyn Sinclair, Dennis Lenevu, M.J. McCarran, Kelvin Ramsey, and Norbert Hardesty. Anyone interested in getting more information or assisting in stopping the silica mine actions can go to Facebook and visit What the Frack, Manitoba. From Winnipeg, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland, this has been Michael Welch. This has been the Global Research News Hour in the summer, a collaboration funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and aided by campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Music was from the song Shifting Sands by Purple Planet Music. It can be found at the site purple-planet.com. Music from the documentary was by Mesa Music Consort and Native Flute Ensemble from the album Native Passions, Eagle's Flight. You can send feedback on this or other programs. Our email address is globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm the show's host, creator, and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you for listening. More vintage shows will begin airing starting next week.